Well, we spent three weeks talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I didn't know at the end of last week if I'd spend one more week or not, but I thought, and one or two of you encouraged me afterward, said, you know, why don't you do that? There have been some controversies about the doctrine of the Trinity. And it has to do with this question. Now, last week, well, we talked about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's three weeks, actually. All three persons being fully God and yet in God. So in the one God, we have three persons. How can that be? We keep finding different passages of Scripture that affirm this, but it really never explains how we can have one being, but three different persons who act differently and relate to each other differently in the one God. So the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son actually takes on a human nature and becomes man so that in the person of Christ, in the person of Christ, we have a human nature and a divine nature in one person. We'll talk more about that when I get to chapter 26 in Systematic Theology. Right now we're only on chapter 14, so it'll be a few weeks yet. We'll talk more about how that can be. But uh, the Father doesn't become man and come and die for our sins. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and die for us. It's just the Son. So the Son does some things that the Father and the Spirit do not do. And then Jesus returns to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is doing some things that the Father and Son do not do. In the course of talking about the Trinity last week and the week before, I talked about the fact that the Father has a leadership role or an authority with regard to the Son, and the Father and Son together have a leadership role or authority with regard to the Holy Spirit. So the Father sends the Holy Spirit into the world, and then Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit whom I will send you from the Father. Or he talks about the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. Both are true. And this has been held through the history of the church. What this means is that though they are equal in deity, equal in value, equal in importance, there is equality in many ways. All three persons are fully, but there is also there is equality and difference. And particularly with regard to authority, the Father has authority that the Son does not have. The Father has a leadership role that the Son does not have. The Father sends the Son into the world, for example. Can you see this way, way, way in the back? Yes? Barely? I know it's not the best lighting because we've got this stage set up here, but we'll make do. Okay, now, that's fine, except about, oh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been some challenge to this idea that the Father has a leadership role that the Son does not share in the Trinity. And so here we go. This, how many, you all have this outline now? Anybody need the outline in back here? Can we get a, a few more of those outlines way over in the back? And just keep your hand in the air until somebody comes and gets you an outline. Egalitarians or evangelical feminists 
around 1997 began to deny the eternal submission of the Son to the Father. Why? Why? Why did they want to do this? Because the doctrine of the Trinity contradicted their most basic assumption. And here's what these people said. What I, I'm going to call them egalitarians. That's a kind of a common term that has been used in theological discussion for people who say there's no difference in role between husband and wife. And they have different interpretations for the verse that says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, or says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your husbands uh, as the church is subject to Christ. They kind of do all sorts of interpretations of those things, and they say, you know what, in marriage, who's the leader? Well, it depends on who has leadership gifts. Sometimes the wife has leadership gifts, sometimes the husband has leadership gifts, but there's no leadership that just belongs to the husband because he's husband. That would be an egalitarian view. And many people who hold this view, um, and I talk to at professional meetings, and I debate on radio shows and things like that from time to time. Um, and, uh, and I, but, I, but I think they're, they're incorrect. But why did they want to challenge this idea of the Trinity? Because the doctrine of the Trinity contradicted their most basic assumption. Here's what they say. If husband and wife are different in authority, they can't be equal in value. And if they're equal in value, they can't be different in authority. They say you can't have both. So they say to me, no, Wayne, look, you say that husband and wife are equal in value. I say, yes, absolutely. Both created in the image of God, Genesis 1. And they say, okay, they're equal in value, so you don't have any leadership role for the husband. I say, no, there is a leadership for the husband. The Bible says that again and again. Husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And they say, oh no, if there's a different role for the husband, <clears throat> then they're not equal. And I say, well, it's equal in value, but it's different in authority. And they say, that can't be. Okay? That's their, and then I say, look at the Trinity. Equal value, they're both, father and son are equally God, but there's a different role, different authority. And so there's a parallel. And they should have said, okay, Wayne, you're right. <laughs> I mean, and they could have <laughs> I think Margaret added a comment back there. I'm not going. I'll hear about it later. Oh, it was Steve? No, it was Diane? I'm, I'll find out later. No, okay. They should have said, okay, Wayne, you're right. But instead around 1997 or so, they started saying, guess what? Wayne Grudem and his friends are wrong about the Trinity. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. So they say you can't have both equality and difference unless it's voluntary and temporary. I'll explain that in a few minutes. My argument and the argument of others in church history has been you can have both equality and value in value and difference in authority. Look at the Trinity. And so here is a, a diagram. Uh, just as the father has authority with respect to the son, but they're equal in value, you have equality and difference. So the husband in marriage has authority with respect to the wife, you have equality and difference. But in marriage, uh, husband and wife are equal in value, and husbands should honor their wives, and wives should honor their husbands. And, uh, we wouldn't do very well without each other. We need each other very much. We depend on each other. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this explicitly. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And I've written three long, long articles defending 
I mean, 40, 50, 70 page articles on technical analysis of Greek words depend, defending the idea that head here means person in authority. I won't go into that, um, but that's been, that's been a side debate, uh, which we could talk about another time. But the egalitarian writings have started, uh, especially with Gilbert Bilizikian, have started to deny the eternal submission of the son to the So here is Gilbert Bilizikian, retired Wheaton College theology professor and also founding elder of Willow Creek Community Church. Uh, Wheaton, Gilbert lives still in the Wheaton area. And uh, when uh, he and I have debated from time to time at professional society meetings and on national radio, and uh, whenever I teach courses on biblical manhood and womanhood, when I was back in Illinois, I used to invite him to come and take a whole class hour and present his view and students could interact with them with him, they loved it, he loved it, so we, we get along, but we definitely disagree on this issue. Here's what Dr. Bilizikian says. He says, it is much more appropriate and theologically accurate to speak of Christ's self-humiliation than, rather than his subordination. Nobody subordinated him and he was originally subordinated to no one. So he, here he's denying this eternal difference between father and son in role. The frame of reference for every term that is found in Scripture to describe Christ's humiliation pertains to his ministry and not to his eternal state. So what he's saying, during the time Jesus was on earth, yes, to the Father, just too much in the Bible to get around that. But he's saying it was just temporary. Just like in a church committee, you could have a temporary arrangement where somebody's the chairman and other people do what the chairman says. Just like in a job, someone could be a boss and someone could be the employee, you do what the boss says, but it's just for the time you're working there. It's temporary, but it's not eternal. Bill Zekin says, because there was no order of subordination within the Trinity prior to the second person's incarnation, he's saying before Jesus became man, there wasn't this father-son authority. There will remain no such thing after its completion. That is a very strange sentence. Completion, incarnation, there will be, remain no such thing after its completion. Completion of the incarnation? What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is going to stop being God and man at some point? My goodness. I don't think anybody in the history of the church has taught that, that he's going to give up his human nature. He's going to come back on earth and reign as king over all the earth. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is a very, very doubtful statement. After the completion of the incarnation, well, we go on. Bill Zekian says, if we must talk of subordination, it is only a functional or economic subordination that pertains exclusively to Christ's role in relation to human history. Because of its temporary character, Christ's subjection does not lend itself as a model for a permanent, generically defined male-female hierarchy. Now, he tends to use pejorative language like hierarchy and other things. He just, it's just the way he talks. Um, but you see where he's going. No, no permanent role difference in the Trinity, therefore it's not a model for male-female roles. He goes on and says, Wayne Grudem states about the clause, the head of Christ is God, that it indicates a distinction in role in which primary authority and leadership among the persons of the Trinity has always been and will always be the possession of God the Father. That's, of course, he's quoting me exactly. But even if head in this passage were to mean authority, neither the passage nor its context indicates in any indication that this headship describes an eternal state. In this text, Paul is referring to the relationship that prevails between God and Christ in the context of Christ's ministry to men and women within human history. So this is a book called Community 101, a little guide to Christian doctrine that he published in 1997. 
saying it's only during Christ's life on earth. Is he right? Note that Bill Ezekiel is willing to say, just to be fair to him, he's willing to say you can have equal value and different authority if it's voluntary and temporary, as in a job, or if a husband and wife agree on different leaders for certain tasks based on interest and ability. He doesn't mind that. But not if it's based on who you are. For example, just being a husband or wife. And not if it's unlimited in duration. For example, for your whole life, for your whole marriage. Uh, which, uh, you know, if you're married for your whole life. So that's why the parallel with the Trinity is important. Some egalitarians realize, and I think they're, they're probably right in this, they realize that if they lose this argument, they lose the whole debate. Why? Because if the Son was eternally subject to the Father, this, this, if this was an eternal relationship right here, <clears throat> yet also equal in value and deity, then the fundamental egalitarian claim is wrong. You can have equal value and different authority in the very being of God forever. Equal value and different authority forever. And therefore, you can have equal value and different being uh, and different authority uh, in, among people and in marriage. Bill Zekin has been followed by others has been followed by others who deny that the Son is eternally subject to the Father. Rebecca Grutois, good news for women. She's a seminary graduate who's a freelance writer now. Her husband, Douglas Grutois, is a, is a, uh, a philosophy professor at, uh, West, at uh, Conservative Baptist Seminary in Denver, and he's written some very, very helpful things. But uh, Rebecca is uh, an ardent feminist or egalitarian, evangelical feminist. Kevin Giles, The Trinity and Subordinationism, published by InterVarsity Press in 2002. Now, this, is, this is Bill Ezekiel's book, Community 101, and this is Giles' book, The Trinity and Subordinationism. Kevin Giles is vicar of St. Michael's Church in North Carlton, Australia. He's an Australian Episcopalian uh, pastor, basically. And he has taken to writing quite a bit on this. Um, and then Kevin Giles, I just found out this week, Kevin Giles has another book, Jesus and the Father, Modern Evangelicals Reinvent the Doctrine of the Trinity. I just ordered it. It hasn't come yet. Who are these modern evangelicals? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> but I just looked last night on Amazon.com. There's one review by a guy who predictably always puts in his own little reviews of evangelical feminists, and he gives them five stars, and he loves them. Here's what he learned from this book. He said, we see how some evangelicals like Wayne Grudem are rewriting history and word definitions in order to promote the Aryan idea of the eternal subordination of the son in order to promote the subordination of women and family and church. The Aryan idea, Aryans are the, are the people that said the son was created. Aryans are the Jehovah's Witnesses today. This is preposterous. Um, and, and it's preposterous because my systematic theology book has been out since 1994 and it clearly denies Arianism, argues strongly against Arianism, and so this is just misrepresentation. But that's, it's a free world, and there's a, we have freedom of speech, and people can write what they want, even if it's not as, as reliable as it might be. Um, um, uh, is there anybody else who has followed this argument? One, th th these, are, these people um, are not uh, sort of, what should I say, people of large uh, 
they're not professors of theology or anything like that. Uh, uh, but Millard Erickson also has questioned, although he's been very, he's been more careful on this. He's questioned the eternal subordination of the Son in God in Three Persons, a book by Baker, 1995. However, um, it's not as, uh, it's not as, what shall I say, as uh, certain or blatant. He's questioning uh, from the idea of church history and not arguing from Scripture. Millard Erickson is also an egalitarian or an evangelical feminist. So uh, there's a certain uh, group of people with a certain orientation on a certain question who have taken this position. But Millard Erickson, um, he has a systematic theology book similar to mine in size, and, uh, and it's widely used, and it's very good in many, many ways. He, as I have, uh, he was a past president of the Evangelical Theological Society just a few years ago as well. Okay, now, what, how would I answer this? Answers to the egalitarian claims. There is substantial testimony in Scripture that the Son was subject to the Father before he came to live on earth. Before. It wasn't just during the time of his life on earth. For instance, <clears throat> God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his only son. That means the father was the father and the son was the son before this time. He had to be the father in order to send his son. They had to have a father-son relationship. It isn't just, oh, one day before the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the father and son were talking and said, hey, would you like, see what you've got to do there? You'd have to say, oh, the Trinity is just person A, person A, and person A. <clears throat> three persons with no difference. And person A says to person A, hey, would you like to be the son? Okay, I'll be the son. Okay, then I'll be the father. You see, once you get go that way, you start saying there's a change in the Trinity. And uh, that's a pretty dangerous thing. So the father had to be the father long before the son came to earth in order to plan and then be able to give his son. In fact, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That implies there's a long period of waiting until it is the right time. And then God sent forth his son. And the idea of the father giving him son, his son implies a headship, a unique authority for the father before the son came to earth. And so the claim that Jesus' submission to his father was only during his time on earth is incorrect. Bilizekian limits it to Philippians 2, when Christ took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. But that's not correct, because there was father and son before the father sent the son. And you go back farther than that. There was a difference in roles in creation. And so John 1.3, talking about the son, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Before Jesus took on a human nature, we have this picture of the Trinity. Before he took on a human nature, Even then, the Father created through the Son. So the universe came into being in this, the Father commanded. And the Son was the powerful Word of God that brought the universe into being. All things were made through Him. The Father works through the Son. Hebrews 1-2 speaks that way. In these last days, He, the Father, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Again, that assumes that authority role for the Father, through whom also he created the world. So the Father creates through the Son. There are other verses like that that I went into about two weeks ago and were on the other outline. It's always from the Father through the Son. That implies a difference in roles before creation. That's a, that's a long time ago. How long? 
Well, once we get to this point, we're talking about something eternal, aren't we? If it's before creation, then it never really began. It means that the father and son related to each other as father and son before, uh, before creation or eternally. And there are other places like that. In other places, the Bible speaks of different roles for father and son before creation. And this, this contradicts Bill Ezekian's argument. It contradicts Kevin Giles' argument, Agrutois' argument, and Millard Erickson's argument. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. This is going way back into the counsels of God before the world was made. It's going back into eternity, past, and saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So it's the Father choosing us in the Son, looking forward to the fact that we're going to be saved someday, choosing us and predestining us in the Son, when? Before the foundation of the world. How do the egalitarians end these arguments? They ignore them. This is eternal. This is, this is, this is an eternal relationship. And uh, sadly, Millard Erickson, he doesn't, he doesn't deal with these, this, with these verses. He, just, he talks about, oh, this is certain Warfield, B.B. Warfield in church history and analyzes one of his writings. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the father choosing in the son. 1 Peter 1, 2, similarly. Revelation 13, 8, another verse. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has, been not, has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. So way back before the foundation of the world, you've got a book of life, and it's the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And that is before the foundation of the world, the crucifixion of Christ, that he would die for our sins, that the son would die for our sins, that was planned before the foundation of the world. Father and son having a different role, eternally. Um, Trent, I lost my screen up here again. This just, this just seems to not like my Trinitarian teaching, this, this projector, I don't know. Um, answer number two, Christ was also subject to the authority of the Father while he was on earth as a man. Now, Bill Ezekiel and others will agree with this. He said, um, the Father is greater than I, Jesus says. Um, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That means he's delegating authority. That means the Father has the primary authority. They agree with this, but I would come back and say, well, if you agree during his life on earth that the Son is, has a different authority, is subordinate to the Father, he is still fully God. And so even during his life on earth, you have full deity or equality in value, and you have difference in role. So I think that there really isn't a a place for the egalitarians to score many debating points by saying it's only during his time on earth still fully God and has a different role. Answer number three, after Christ returns to heaven, then what happened? He was still subject to the authority of the Father. So we go to eternity past, we go to creation, we go to salvation or redemption, and then we look after Christ is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, what's the situation then? Bill Ezekiel said he's only subject to the Father during the incarnation, or during his life on earth, rather, but look what happens. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean in the biblical world to sit at someone's right hand? Are you first or second in authority? Second. Remember, mother of James and John says, let my son sit at your right hand. They're not, she's not asking that, that Jesus would be subject to them. She's asking they'd be in second place. Sit at the right, and, and Joseph is at Pharaoh's right hand. He's the second in command. But when the Bible that Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high, that means the father is still in charge. Hmm. What does Bill Ezekiel say about this? He says, well, they're both on the throne, so it must be equal. I mean, that's literally what he says. They're both on the throne. He's at the right hand, so he's on the throne, so they're sharing. They're equal on the throne. But I don't think he gives, he does not give an answer to the fact that to be at someone's right hand in the ancient world, or even today, to be at the right hand of the president, that would mean to be second in command, wouldn't it? But to be at the right hand doesn't mean you're the person in charge. And I just put the verses up here to demonstrate there are a lot of verses that say this. I'll just go through them really quickly. Matthew 26, 64. You'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Mark 14:62. Seated at, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Luke 22:69. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Acts 2:33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So again, does the Father initiate the Son carrying out? Um, Acts 5:31. God exalted him at His right hand as leader and savior. Stephen, Acts 7, 55 to 56, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Romans 8, 34, Jesus Christ, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, Jesus is at the right hand of God. That means he's subject to the authority of the Father after his ministry on earth. And then it says, who indeed is interceding for us, the Greek word here, entukano, means to bring requests, bring petitions. The Son is bringing requests to the Father. That also is consistent with the idea of someone who is subject to the authority of the Father. He's interceding for us. Uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, Christ seated at the right hand of God, Hebrews 1.3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.13, quoting Psalm 110, sit at my hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Hebrews 8.1, we have a, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, Hebrews 10.12-13, he sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 12, 2, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you think I need any more verses? Let's try a few more. Who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Nowhere is this pattern reversed. Nowhere. It's repeated again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Nowhere is it said that the Father sits at the Son's right hand. Never. Nowhere does the Son give the Father the authority to sit with him on his throne. Never. The supreme authority always belongs to the Father. The egalitarian claim that Jesus was subject to the Father only during his life on earth is therefore incorrect. I'm going to read a paragraph here. 
from a book in which I've responded in some detail to Bill Ezekian and Kevin Giles and Rebecca Grutois and Millard Erickson. The book is called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, an analysis of more than 100 disputed questions, but I'm only going to talk about this one. Um, Here's a paragraph from page 414. The relationship between father and son that is seen in so many passages is never reversed, not in predestination before the foundation of the world, not in creation, not in sending the son, not in directing what the son would do, not in granting authority to the son, not in the son's work of redemption, nor in the son's return to sit at the father's right hand, not in the son's handing over the kingdom to God the father, never. Never does scripture say that the Son sends the Father into the world, or the Holy Spirit sends the Father or the Son into the world, or that the Father obeys the commands of the Son or the Holy Spirit. Never does scripture say that the Son predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Father. The of planning, directing, sending, and commanding the Son belongs to the Father only. And just as Father and Son are equal and different, so God has made husband and wife to be equal and different. These verses imply, then, that someone can be subordinate to, in authority to someone else, but still be equal in personhood and being and importance. Answer number four. And now this is just to go into more detail on what happens in the future. Answer number four. The son will forever be subject to the authority of the father because 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this is Paul looking forward after all the conflicts have ended, after Christ has come back and he reigns on the earth, then what happens? Then also at that time, as has been through an etern true in eternity past and through all the history of the world, then also the Son will be subjected to him, put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What does Dr. Bilizekian say about this? He says... This really doesn't have anything to do with anything eternal. Any, th any inference relative to an eternal state of subjection that would extend beyond this climactic fulfillment is not warranted by this text or any other biblical text. It sounds like he's saying, well, the son will be subject to the father just for one more minute, and then it'll all change again. Um, but this verse... This verse marks the beginning of the eternal state after all of history is culminated. And no verse even hints that this situation will never end. In fact, Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. A father-son relationship, therefore, in which the father is head and has the leading, initiating, directing, sending role, and the son has the role of obeying and delighting in the will of the father has been the pattern from eternity past, in creation, in redemption, in the church age, and will be the pattern forever. And just, this is repeating now, just as the father and son are equal and different, God has made husband and wife to be equal and different. And now, I'm just going to recall something that I wrote when I was just a young theology professor in my uh, third year of teaching, I guess. 1979, I wrote this, a proper understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity may well turn out to be the most decisive factor in finally deciding the current debate. And I was talking about the debate over the roles of men and women in marriage and the church. And Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, a book review I published in 1979. And I think that's proving to be true, that people see that the doctrine of the Trinity that seems so obscure actually has a lot of practical application for our daily life. Now, the question is, what about the history of the church? 
am I in line with the history of the church? Or is Kevin Giles, this vicar from Australia, right and saying that I'm out of line and changing the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't think I'm out of line, but let's see. The Christian church throughout history has affirmed both the subordination of the Son to the Father with respect to their roles and the equality of the Son with the Father with respect to their being. Remember what Bill Ezekiel said. He said, there was no order of subordination within the Trinity prior to the second person's incarnation. I think I've given probably 20 or 25 verses that deny that. And then he says, there will remain no such thing after its completion, whatever that means. There's only a functional subordination that pertains to Christ's role in human history. That's what he said. And then he says, except for occasional and predictable deviations. I don't know what he means by that. This is the historical biblical Trinitarian doctrine that has been defined in the creeds and generally defended by the church, at least in the Western church throughout the centuries. He gives no footnotes, no evidence. It's just an assertion, but I think he's incorrect on this. My response is that historical Christian creeds affirm both equality and subordination. They affirm that Jesus was fully God, but the Nicene Creed says, for instance, that Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not made. It didn't have to do with his being, but as I explained a while ago, they understood that this begotten had to do with having a father-son relationship eternally. That's in the Nicene Creed, and he said at the right hand of the Father. That's in the Nicene Creed, talking about not temporary, but even now in the church age. The um, Chalcedonian Creed, 451, begotten before all ages of the Father. That has to do with a father-son relationship. Father uh, is, the Son is of the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. He sitteth on the right hand of God in the Athanasian Creed. The 39 Articles, which is the doctrinal statement of the Church of England, 1571, the Son is begotten from everlasting of the Father. And that means there's a difference in role between Father and Son. Westminster Confession of Faith, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, 1643 to 1646. Now, when we get into theology professors and church history professors, experts in the history of doctrine who explain this, here's how they explain it. Charles Hodge, who taught at Princeton, I don't know, for decades. Charles Hodge published a systematic theology book in three volumes in the 1860s and 1870s that I still used at Westminster Seminary in the 1960s. It was in print as the standard theology book used by many people throughout the world for over 100 years. It's a massive volume, uh, an unbelievably erudite uh, scholarly man and completely orthodox scholar who taught at Princeton, one of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced. He says the Nicene Doctrine, that is the, the Trinitarian doctrine taught in the Nicene Creed, includes the principle of the subordination of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Father and Son. But this subordination does not imply inferiority. The subordination intended is only that which concerns the mode of subsistence and operation. The creeds are nothing more than a well-ordered arrangement of the facts of Scripture which concern the doctrine of the Trinity. They assert the distinct personality of Father, Son, and Spirit and their consequent perfect equality. So we have equality here. And the subordination of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Father and Son as to the mode of subsistence and operation. These are scriptural facts to which the creeds in question add nothing. And it is in this sense that they have been accepted by the church universal. So Hodge, a monumental figure in the history of theology, is saying what I'm saying. He's saying there's been this eternal difference and the church universal has held that. Now along comes a pastor in Australia who says, who says Grudem is wrong. But I think he's contrary to the whole history of the church in saying that, even though Baker and Zondervan are publishing, his, or InterVarsity Press and Zondervan are publishing his stuff. 
Um, and so my answer is, we may describe the difference in relationship in other terms, such as later, as later theologians did, we can speak of the eternal subordination of the Son in role or relationship, and still say we are holding to the historic Trinitarian doctrine, but we should not deny that there is any eternal difference in relation between the Father and the Son, as Bill Ezekiel and others do, and still claim to hold the historic Trinitarian doctrine of the Church. I think it is they who are deviating from that doctrine. It's irresponsible scholarship, and this is taken from my book, to accuse all those who hold to the historic doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father of tampering with the Trinity. Okay, now, I've got a few more quotes, but Bob, is this a 9.15 morning for us? I don't think so. I think uh, they start next week. Okay. I've got to make a, a judgment call here as to whether to stop and interact with you. Let's see if I can go quickly through this. Augustine, the, the one is... The, why did the son? Why was the son sent by the father? Why didn't? The, why didn't? Why wasn't the father sent by the son? We said simply that the one is the father and the other the son. That's what I'm saying. Why? Why did the father send the son? Because he was the father. <laughs> I mean, there was a difference. He had an initiating and a directing role. Uh, and yet, that the son is sent by the father, not because one is greater and the other less, but because one is the father and the other the son. One is begetter and the other begotten. The Son is from the Father, not the Father from the Son. All that language in the Trinitarian controversy had to do with this difference in relationship. We're okay, We're okay to 925. Okay, because I want another five minutes and then we'll interact here. Um, John Calvin, 1509-154. To the Father is attributed the beginning of activity and the fountain and wellspring of all, all things. To the Son, wisdom, counsel, and the ordered disposition of all things. We must not seek an eternity of before and after. Nevertheless, the observance of an order is not meaningless or superfluous. When the Father is thought of as first, then from him the Son, and finally from both the Spirit. Again, he uses a little bit different language, but there is a priority to the Father. He initiates. He begins. Augustus Strong. Now, A.H. Strong wrote a systematic theology book from about 1900 to 1960. was used in all the Baptist seminaries in the world, or most of them. Uh, basically until Millard Erickson's book came along and then a few others have come along, such as my own. Um, but Strong, again, says, 1836 to 1921, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while equal in essence and deity, stand to each other in an order of personality, office, and operation. The subordination of the person of the Son to the person of the Father is to be officially, to be officially first, the Son second, and the Spirit third is persistent with equality. Priority is necessarily superiority. The same thing I'm saying. Louis Burkhoff, 1873-1957, professor at Calvin Seminary. Before I wrote my systematic theology book, I used Burkhoff's book, Systematic Theology. Again, uh, in the 20th century, maybe the leading figure, well, you've got, you've got a few others, but one of the leading figures in all of American theology and greatly uh, knowledgeable in the history of doctrine. Burkhoff says the subordination of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Father and Son is not in any way inconsistent with true equality. This is interesting. He says we have an analogy of such priority and subordination, for instance, in the relationship which exists between the husband and wife and the human family. I didn't make this up. This has been around a long time. Philip Schaff. Schaff is a Lutheran scholar. Schaff is, uh, I don't know if he's the greatest historian, in the, of, uh, historian of theology in the history of the church, but he, but, but he may be. Multi, multi-volume uh, set on the history of the Christian church. Schaff says, the Nicene Fathers still teach. This is back to the Nicene Creed, 325, 381. He's explaining them. 
teach like their predecessors a certain subordinationism which seems to con conflict with the doctrine of consubstantiality. That means they have the same being. But we must distinguish between a subordination of essence, usia, and a subordination of hypostasis, of order and dignity. The former was denied, the latter affirmed. Sorry for all the big words. He's saying there is a subordination of order or working in, in the Nicene Fathers. Jeffrey Bromley, uh, now retired, was a professor for many, many years at Fuller, one of the most conservative professors at Fuller, professor of church history, and again, an exceptionally competent church historian. Bromley, writing the New Dictionary of Theology, says, eternal generation is the phrase used to denote the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and Son as is taught by the Bible. There's a divine sonship prior to the incarnation. Sorry, Dr. Bilizikian. And there is a distinction of persons within the Godhead, and between these persons there is, there is a superiority and subordination of order. Romilly says eternal in the, in the ancient creeds. Eternal reinforces the fact that the generation is not merely economic, because of human salvation, as in the incarnation, but it's essential, and that as such it cannot be construed in the categories of natural human generation. Thus it does not imply a time when the Son was not, as Arianism argued, nor does this subordination imply inferiority. The phrase corresponds to what God has shown us of himself in his own eternal being. It finds expression in the phrases, begotten of his Father before all worlds, and begotten before the worlds, Athanasian and Nicene Creed. Let's see, do I have time here? Uh, there's kind of a, another objection, it's not in your outline. Sarah Sumner teaches at Azusa Pacific University now, uh, professor. She says, he's, she's got another twist on this, I'll just mention this. To whom is Christ finally subjected? God. Christ the Son is subject to the triune God of three persons. Not true, he's subject to the Father. He's not subject to the Holy Spirit. So she's got a mistake here. The Son is subjected to the God and Father, and in that sense, the Son is subjected to himself. This is the doctrine of the... My answer is, Sarah, a former student of mine, um, this is not the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't know, and I don't know if she took doctrine of the Trinity from me, but she's got it messed up. This sounds more like ancient modalism, the view that there's only one person in God, than Trinitarianism. The Son is not subjected to the whole being of God. The Son is subjected to the Father. The Son doesn't pray to the whole being of God. He prays to the Father. There's a distinction in the activities of the persons. Um, Kevin Giles, how does he make his argument? Look at this. In seeking to make a response to my fellow evangelicals who subordinate the Son to the Father, I do not appeal directly to particular scriptural passages to establish who is right and wrong. Whoa, very interesting. I seek rather to prove that orthodoxy, he means church history, rejects this way of reading the scriptures. Giles admits, I concede immediately that the New Testament can be read to teach the Son is eternally subordinated to the Father. But then he says, I'm not going to use scripture. He's got a whole book by Intervarsus saying, hmm, I'm not going to use scripture. People can argue scripture different ways. I'm going to argue church history. Okay. But then he seriously, seriously misrepresents church history uh, and differs with these summary statements by really many experts in the history of doctrine. So InterVarsity Press publishes it, and I found out last week that my friends at Zondervan have published it too, but they are also pushing an evangelical feminist agenda. So Millard Erickson questions the idea of eternal subordination, but he fails to treat any of the passages just mentioned. And again, he's just dealing with one figure in church history primarily, a man named Warfield, that I think he really hasn't fully understood. 
One more thing before we, this is point B. This is the other side of your outline. Um, there's one more idea. Egalitarians or evangelical feminists have also started to teach mutual submission within the Trinity. Within the Trinity, just the Father submits to the Son, so there's no unique authority for the Father in relation to the Son. Here's the idea. I would say that the Trinity provides a pattern for the relationship between the husband and wife. So there's equality, but there's a difference in authority. Egalitarians have come back and said, you know what? After thinking about this a while, we think that there is mutual submission. Wife submits to husband, husband submits to wife. Nobody's in charge. And I say, wait a minute, that's not the pattern of the Trinity. And Stanley Grins says, oh, guess what? There's mutual submission in the Trinity, too. The Father submits to the Son. And Stanley Grins, actually, Stanley Grins, sadly, uh, just uh, died of a massive brain hemorrhage in his early 50s just uh, last year. But uh, before he died, I talked with him at a professional society meeting. I said, Stan, where, in the, where is there any place in the Bible where it says the, son, uh, the Father obeys the Son, or the Father submits to the Son? He could give me no passage from Scripture. Well, as anybody in the history of the church held that the Father submits to the Son, he could give me no quote from anybody. There's no recognized teacher in church history, but he still has argued that. Um, I'm going to skip over that. He said, basically, he says, well, the father couldn't be the father unless he had a son. Uh, that would be like saying, if I didn't have a wife, I would not be a husband. Therefore, I must have no unique authority as a husband, and there must be mutual submission in my marriage. Or if I did not have a child, I would not be a parent. Therefore, I must have no authority as a parent. And there must be mutual submission. That's confusing the categories. It's saying if there wasn't a marriage, there wouldn't be a marriage. But it doesn't say anything about authority. Or if there wasn't a trinity, there wouldn't be a trinity. But it doesn't say anything about authority. So I, don't, I think that's a kind of a, a, a word trick. It's not really a persuasive argument. My response is that no passage of scripture and no recognized writer throughout the history of the church support the idea of mutual submission in the trinity. It's an egalitarian invention created to justify the egalitarian ideal of mutual submission in marriage. And here's what I, I think the problem is. If you say there's no unique authority for the father, what you end up having then, you don't know that there's any difference between father and son. You basically, I think, end up having a trinity that looks like this. Person A, person A, and person A, where there's no differences between them. And, if you, and ultimately, I think that egalitarian tampering with this doctrine in the Trinity and arguing for mutual submission, that's tampering and, and, and messing with the idea of eternal differences in roles among the persons, and I think that is going to lead in the direction of modalism, that is, just one person in God. It hasn't gone there yet, but that's the tendency that it's going to have. Conclusion, the idea of authority and submission never began. It existed forever in the very being of God. Authority and submission did not begin with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in 1987, nor with patriarchal men in the Old Testament, nor in the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis. The idea of authority and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, and what does that mean for practical terms? It means in marriage that we can have equality and difference in authority and mutual respect and honor. And it shouldn't be thought of as demeaning or 
devaluing of a wife with respect to her husband, but just as the father greatly honors the son, so the husband should greatly honor and value and respect his wife and love his wife. Yet there is a leadership role that belongs to the husband. And that's, that's the payoff uh, for us. It also has payoff in terms of how we think about authority generally, authority of government, authority of our boss in the workplace, authority of the elders in a church, authority of parents in the family. We have in our society a strong tendency that says, resist all authority. Authority is bad. If you're in charge, that's fine. But if you're under authority, try to get out of it. And the Bible isn't that way. It shows that the son eternally subject to the authority of the father. And yet that is his glory, his glory to do the father's will. And he delights in it. And he is honored as a result of it. And so the idea of authority is not itself evil. It's something that exists eternally in the very being of God. Okay, we have about four or five minutes uh, that we can do some interaction and some questions. I hope it wasn't too boring for you that I did that. But but part of the reason I did it is it kind of gives you a little window into professional debates in my own life, and I thought it wouldn't hurt to kind of understand that. Okay, Kathy, John. That's great. Okay, so I'm going to repeat for the tape. Um, is is this why the doctrine of the Trinity is important? Because it has payoff in marriage, or, well, I'll say, in 2006, it's why it's important. There are other reasons why the doctrine of the Trinity is important. Muslims deny it. Jehovah's Witnesses deny it. They have distorted view of God, and it leads to a distorted view of how we should live our life. But and and it, it leads to, I think, a loss of salvation. Uh, because you don't have a fully divine son who can die for our sins, and there are some other things. But um, right here, here's one payoff. And it's, just, it's one example of how if people deny the Trinity, they go wrong in other areas eventually, and that's happened historically in other ways. In New England, the Unitarians denied the Trinity, and they just became totally liberal, for instance. So, yeah. Yeah, what else? Anything else? Yeah, um, uh, Gene? It's interesting. Uh, Gene's talking about the Muslim attack, Muslims historically attacking the Christians, saying you believe in three gods or something like that. And it is interesting that other religions who are not Christian end up attacking the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's it's almost predictable. They'll either say, if you believe in one God, you can't have three persons. That's what the Muslims say. Or if you believe in three persons, they can't be equal. Uh, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. But but they deny that you can have three persons and one being of God. And that's it's easy to deny because there's nothing like it in creation. 
We don't know what it's like God's being. And so it's for us to understand or even picture. And so it's, it's kind of easy for other religions to take pot shots at it in kind of a simple way. But yeah, that's where they'll attack. It's good. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Uh, I can't see here. What's your name? Doc. Doc. I have not watched more than five minutes of TBS in my life, as, as far as I know, so I can't. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying that it's not good. I just, at age 13, decided I wasn't going to watch TV very much for the rest of my life, and so that's, a 50, that's a 45 years ago, and so, um, so I just don't. But, um, but uh, I have heard that... There are some speakers that have been allowed on there. Not that the official Trinity Broadcasting Network would probably believe in the Trinity, you would think. Uh, but what has happened, there are these, what's called these Oneness Pentecostal uh, or these Jesus-only people, and they, they kind of seem like genuine Christians, and they've maybe been given some airtime too. So that's a, that's a concern. Yeah. Okay, anything else, Diane? <laughs> it, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God said to them, uh, it, let's see, um, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so where they made then co-regents. Um, the analogy perhaps would be king and queen, uh, but Adam still had a leadership role. Uh, but, but there's still much authority that's given within the family, within the household, and within uh, areas of business. For instance, the Proverbs 31 woman who has her own business, considers a field and buys it. With, uh, through her hand, she plants a vineyard. Her merchandise is profitable. And things. So there are roles of, there are realms already that are appropriate for women as well as men. Um, and uh, as princes and princesses or kings and queens, I suppose um, God has called us to have uh, share in rule over the creation, which is wonderful. Uh, but I think there's still a male headship there in, in marriage, which is what I'm talking about right now. Okay. Good. Well, I can't see. Oh, yeah. John. Uh, you were talking about the Bill Ezekiel and not being sure what you meant about the incarnation. Bill Ezekiel, yes. Yes. Yes, I believe that Jesus... What, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think the yesterday mean while he was on earth and today, uh, while he's in heaven and then forever. And so, um, yes, uh, he will return in the same manner as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back in his, in his human nature. Uh, now, in glorify, a glorified nature with the brightness of the glory of God surrounding him, and he'll rule over the creation. But he will exist as God and man forever. Yeah. And that's that's how we will see him, and we'll be like him, Edie. Yep. Right. Uh, do I want to talk about roles outside of marriage for men and women? <laughs> sure, sometime. But um, I think I think there's a leadership role for for I think there's a leadership role the Bible assigns to to men in marriage and the church. 
so we have only male elders and a male senior pastor here at Scottsdale Bible, but we have lots of men, women in very prominent and influential ministries here at Scottsdale Bible Church um, with having a lot of responsibility. Uh, and so um, there's both, but there is a leadership role that's restricted to men. And I think that the Bible only says that with regard to um, marriage and the church. So I, I, I am going to vote. I, I, I'm going to vote for one of those women, Colette Rosati or Carolyn Allen. Um, uh, when I mail in my ballot as a state representative, I don't think there's anything in the Bible that prohibits women serving in government, for instance. And um, those are the two candidates in my district, and I have my opinion on which one is better, which I'm not going to divulge while I have the microphone on, but I'll tell any of you after class if you want to come up. Okay, so next week, are you ready to talk about when the earth was created and how, many, how long the days of creation were? All right, we go to creation next week, although the days of creation will probably be about the third week into it. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one, we thank you that you eternally have existed in a way that is so amazing and wonderful and beyond our comprehension. And uh, Father, we thank you that we can pray to you as Father, whom we love and adore and who cares for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are our Savior who has come and died for us, who hears our prayers, whoever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you that you are exalted to a place of great glory and honor at the right hand of the Father, and you will reign eternally. I always thank you that you dwell within us, that you intercede for us according to the will of God. You guide and lead and empower us. We thank you for who you are, and we praise you, God three in one. Amen. See you next week.